morning, men. Great to be with you. And yeah, I was taking a chance wearing uh, the Cubs gear here today in Ohio. <laughs> but it is so good to see so many of you here, despite the crazy weather we had. Uh, we're, we're glad to be here gathering around uh, our Lord Jesus, who's present here in, in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel upstairs. If, if you know me, of course, I love baseball. And one of the things I connect is Lent and spiritual spring training. So if you think about it, what's happening in, you know, Arizona and Florida right now are these professional baseball players who've done this their whole lives. They go down to spring training and they go back to the basics, right? They're practicing bunting, running, hitting, fielding as if they were just starting over like little leaguers. Their goal, maybe personal goals, make the all-star team, team goals, winning the World Series, and then ultimately, individually, to make it to the Hall of Fame. It's very similar for us as Catholics, right? Every Lent, we go back to the basics, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and we, we are preparing for this long season ahead, if you will, but we go back to the basics. No, many, no matter how many Lents that we have participated in, we are walking this journey together, starting over. And our ultimate goal, of course, is to be in God's heavenly hall of fame, is to be with the Lord Jesus for all eternity. And so it's so appropriate that we're here during this Lenten season to start this journey of growing in holiness. Because you and I are called to be holy. You and I are called to be saints. So often we hear that and we think that's just for those special priests and religious, but no, it's for all of us. How many of you are Matthew Kelly fans? So one of, one of the books that he wrote <clears throat> is called The Biggest Lie in the History of Christianity. And you know what the biggest lie is? Is that you can't be holy. And he says that every single one of us not only are called to be holy, but we can be holy making good decisions one moment at a time. It led to another one of his books that was uh, Holy Moments. He says, in the next 60 seconds, can you think good thoughts, do good deeds? And you say, I can do that for 60 seconds. He said, okay, repeat it. And all of a sudden, you've got a holy minute, a holy hour, a holy day, week, year. And of course, eventually you start to live a holy life. But it's all done living in the present moment. I had the opportunity almost two years ago to walk the Camino of Santiago in Spain. Life-changing experience. How many of you have done that? Anybody? If you haven't, put it on your bucket list. And people ask me, what was the biggest takeaway from, from that walk? So we were about three or four weeks into the five-week journey, 515 miles and I was getting a craving for a smoothie for some reason. And as you walk the Camino, there are different stands set up along the way. And, you know, they have bananas and nuts and, and fruit and all kinds of things. And I saw this one stand and it had some bananas. So I stopped there and this man walks out from the house and he was an American. He looked just like Jesus, long hair, these bright blue eyes. And he, he said, do you want a smoothie? And I said, are you serious? 
So I said, absolutely. And I looked around and I said, do, do you have a to-go cup? Because I was with seven guys and the other guys had kept walking. And he said, why are you in such a hurry? I said, well, you know, there's seven of us. We're trying to stay together on this journey. And then he stopped me in my tracks and he looked me right in the eye as if Jesus were looking me in the eye. And he said this. He said, no, I'm serious. Why are you in such a hurry? And I didn't have an answer for it. Because how many of us are just running through life, getting to the next thing? We've got our, our list of things to do. And, you know, we miss the present moment right in front of us. And when I read the lives of the saints, one of the most common things I find is the ability to live in the moment, to love the person right in front of us, to think holy thoughts, to do holy deeds. And that's how we become saints, one moment at a time. So I'd like to share with you some of my own journey because the odds of me being here today as a Catholic priest when I was born 57 years ago would have been astronomical against it. So I was born in a family that wasn't Catholic. My mother was raised Baptist. My father was raised in the United Church of Christ. And I'm the youngest of three boys. Our family revolved around sports, probably like many of your families. And my parents, they were looking for a church, but they kind of fell out of practice. So I was really an unchurched Protestant child. We would pray before going to bed, but that was about it. And so I remember we would go to Wrigley Field on a regular basis. My dad played college basketball at Mississippi State. My mom was a high school basketball and softball player, big sports family. So we'd go to Wrigley Field. Now my parents grew up in St. Louis, so diehard Cardinal fans. They moved to, they moved to Chicagoland and we would go to Wrigley Field and we would root against the Cubs, whoever they were playing. <laughs> and I remember when I was a seven-year-old boy at Wrigley Field, the Phillies came into town. Mike Schmidt, probably remember him, he had three home runs that day. And as a little guy, I became a diehard Phillies fan. But what I also said to myself that day, I said, I'm going to be on that field one day. And I, you know, scripture says when Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, it said he set his eyes like flint. I did that on baseball. And my life revolved around baseball. So I went through public schools through eighth grade like my older brothers. My older brothers went to the public high schools in Joliet, Illinois, where I grew up. And when it came time for high school, my parents had a little surprise for me. They weren't happy with the public schools, so they said, Burke, you have two options, Joliet Catholic or Providence Catholic. <laughs> and not being Catholic, I thought, are you kidding me? So I visited both schools. Most of my friends were going to Providence, so that's where I went. I walked into this new environment. I had never met a priest, and there were five teaching there. I had never met a religious sister. There were seven teaching there. I had never been to Mass before. I had to take the theology courses and go to Mass, and I thought, I'll check the boxes, but I'm here to further my baseball career. So I remember Sister Margaret Ann was our freshman theology teacher, and I was so afraid that she would embarrass me in front of my peers, like, ask me a simple question, like name one of the Gospels, and I wouldn't be able to answer her. I knew nothing. I had zero religious education. But she never put me on the spot. But one day, I remember at the end of class, now I was an extremely shy teenager, which is very common because as a teenager, you're trying to figure out who you are, and 
And so I would walk around school, I would have my eyes on the ground all the time because they say the eyes are what? The window to the soul. And I knew what was going on in my soul and I didn't want anyone else to know. And so this day in class, I saw Sister Margaret Ann was the last one in the classroom and me. And I thought, how can I get by her without any interaction? So I put my head down and started walking and she stopped me in my tracks. She lifted my chin, looked me in the eyes, and she said, Burke, you're searching for something. Now, how do you respond to that at the age of 14? I just kind of smiled, and I tried to walk away, and she stopped me again. And she said, read this. And she gave me my first Bible. She said, I want you to start reading in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I didn't know where the Gospel of Matthew was, but I was an obedient child. So after school, baseball practice, dinner, doing my homework, I went to my room and shut the door because I didn't want my brothers to know that I was reading the Bible. And I started reading one chapter a night. And as I started reading more and more, I, I couldn't get enough. And what Sister Margaret Ann said was true. Not only was I searching for something, but I was searching for someone. And I found him. And I couldn't get enough. And when they started talking about, in the scriptures, Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, I thought to myself, if this is true, and that's a big if, but if it's true, I'm going to follow him wherever he leads me. Never thought I'd be a Catholic priest. And so I would go to the all-school masses at Providence, and they would teach us that, you know, the host that, we, that they receive at Mass was the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And I thought, how can that be? Now, I was a math and science guy. I'm very empirical. I want to have proof. And I didn't believe. And so I'd go to the all-school Masses in the gym. You can imagine about 1,200 students there. And they never taught us, you know, this sign to come up and get a blessing. So as a non-Catholic, I just stayed in, in the bleachers and watched as my friends reverently went forward for communion. And I thought, again, why are they so reverent? It's just a piece of bread, or so I thought. Well, my junior year, I went on a retreat. And at the end of the retreat, there was a mass and a visiting priest. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. There were 20 guys at the retreat. So he gathered us around the altar for communion. And he started going around the semicircle with communion. He started over here. I was over there. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. I was getting really nervous because I didn't know what to do. And so as he stood before me and he said, the body of Christ, I opened my mouth to say, I'm not Catholic. <laughs> but before the words came out, <laughs> in went my first communion. <laughs> now, I know that's not recommended and I'm not recommending it. But that moment, that accident changed my life. It was so powerful that I knew instinctively that this was the body of Christ. It was so powerful, I went home that night to my Protestant parents and I said, I have to join the Catholic Church. And they said, slow down. <laughs> so my parents had always told us that when we were 18, they would support us in our decision to follow a faith as long as we had prayed about it and we studied the faith. And so I took one-on-one -on -one instructions with Father Mike at Providence from my junior to senior year. And the more I learned, the more everything just fit together. And I thought, this is the faith I want to be a part of. And so May 26, 1985, in the chapel at Providence, I was baptized. I received my second communion <laughs> and my confirmation. One of the greatest days of my life because I became part, sure, 
Give it up for the Lord. I was so happy to be one of the 1.2 billion Catholics in the world and never in my wildest dreams imagined being a priest because remember, I had a one-track mind on baseball. So I was uh, named All-State my junior and senior year at Providence and I received a scholarship to play baseball at Mississippi State University. So I, is somebody from state here? All right, we got one. Anybody else? <laughs> That's amazing at Ohio. So on my recruiting trip, so I, I, my final three choices were Northwestern. I went there. Joe Girardi was my host. It snowed like today. I said, I'm sick of the snow. Crossed it off the list. Mississippi State, and then I was going to go to Stanford for my third trip. I get down to Starkville, Mississippi. Playing for Mississippi State was Will Clark, Rafael Palmero, Bobby Thigpen, and Jeff Brantley, all future major leaguers. They were playing Auburn, and Bo Jackson was playing for Auburn. 10,000 people in the stands, 80 degrees in February. I signed a letter of intent, <laughs> canceled my trip to Stanford, and started preparing my, for my college career. Now, God has a sense of humor. I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, which is about 60% Catholic as a non-Catholic. Now I become Catholic, and I find myself in the middle of Mississippi, 2% <laughs> Catholic. So on our baseball team of 40 guys, two of us were practicing Catholics. And one of our coaches, who is an evangelical Christian, led a Bible study every Saturday morning, 7 o'clock. I was there every Saturday because I wanted to continue learning about Jesus and the scriptures. But inevitably, the questions would turn to the Catholics. Why do you Catholics worship Mary? Why do you go to a priest for confession when you can take your sins straight to God? And how in the world can you believe that this is the body and blood of Jesus when it's just a symbol of what Jesus did at the Last Supper? So even though I just had four years of a great education, I didn't know how to defend my faith. I didn't know apologetics. So they really made me study my faith. But they also made me doubt my decision to become Catholic. And so I started to go to their, their churches uh, on Sunday and, you know, I went to the Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Pentecostal. I, I tried them all, and there was something beautiful in every faith, the preaching, the music. But there was always one thing that I was missing, and what was that? The Eucharist, the Eucharist. And so I'd go to their church, and then I'd find myself going back to Mass so I could receive Holy Communion. Now, most kids, when they go to college, they stop going to church, right? <laughs> I'm going to church twice every Sunday, so I should have known something was going on. So... About three months into this, I thought, I'm called to be Catholic, and I always will. I stopped going to the other churches and just stayed going to Mass. I didn't go to daily Mass, but I went to Sunday Mass, and it was a challenge as a college baseball player traveling all over the place, trying to find Masses uh, on the road. But my college career went pretty well. But I learned a very important lesson. It's called R.I.M., Relationship, Identity, Mission. This is what, if you forget everything else I say, I think this will be one of the most important things uh, in this talk. Relationship, Identity, Mission. We start with a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From there, he reveals to us our identity, as Father said earlier, as, as a beloved child of God. And then we have a mission in that order. But so often, we get, the, we get it backwards. We start with our mission from there, we get our identity, and then if we have time, we fit in a relationship with God. So when I ask a man, who are you, how do men normally respond? 
their career, right? I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. Well, what's the problem with that? Do you ever have a bad day at work? Do you ever switch jobs? Do you ever retire? You know, as chaplain for the Cubs, working with Major League Baseball players, have you ever seen a professional athlete, when they retire, they spiral out of control? It's because they don't know who they are. They've so identified themselves with their career, now that their career is done, they're saying, who am I? And they start to grasp for things in this world, and we know nothing in this world can fill that infinite void in our hearts. Only God can. And so I learned this the hard way. My mission was to be a baseball player. My identity was, I'm a baseball player. And when I had time, I fit in a relationship with God. Here's uh, an illustration of that. So my freshman year in college, I was a second baseman. Our third baseman was also our closing pitcher. So Coach Polk came to me in the fall and he said, Burke, when Pete comes in to pitch, I want to move you to third base and we'll bring in another second baseman. Are you up for that? And I said, sure, Coach, whatever helps the team. And so the first time it happens, we're playing Auburn University at home. Again, 10,000 people in the stands. We're up 5-2 to two in the ninth inning. Pete comes in to pitch. I move to third, bring in Scott to play second base. So as I'm getting ready, and I never played third base in my life, I look up, and who's up to bat for Auburn? But Frank Thomas. <laughs> now, if you don't know Frank Thomas, he's about 6'5", 260 pounds, one of the largest human beings you'll ever see with an aluminum bat in his hands. <laughs> now, I'm playing third base, and I'm praying, and Coach always says, want the ball, never be, you know, surprised, and I'm praying, please don't hit it to me, right? <laughs> playing left field almost, and so what does he do? It's a hard ground ball to third base. It was one of those that's spinning so hard you could hear the seams, bounced off my chest, air on the third baseman, man on first. I'm like, okay, shake this off. Next guy hits a ball to my left, and I glove it, and as I'm transferring the ball, I drop it. First and second, nobody out. Like, okay, shake it off. Next guy hits a ball to my right, and I'm thinking, what, triple play, right? I glove the ball. Now, who's running from second base? Frank Thomas. I bobble it a little bit, and before I can get the ball and step on third, he slides, knocks me on my backside, bases loaded, nobody out. Now, these fans, they don't know this Yankee from Adam, you know, and so they're getting restless. Long story short, all three guys come around to score. They tie the game five to five. We... I'm running to the third base dugout at the end of the inning, and it it felt like 50 miles, you know, it was just about 30 yards. And there was one voice in the crowd of 10,000 that said, we had to go all the way to Illinois to get this guy. (laughs) We ended up losing the game in 15 innings, and I was responsible for that. Now, this is before the internet. This was 1987. Uh, And I called my parents after every game, gave them a play-by-play, as horrible as it was, and I said, I can never recover from this. These people hate me. I quit. My dad very quickly said, stop it. He said, tomorrow's a new day. Dust yourself off and get back out there. And when I reflect on that conversation from my father, it was like God speaking to me and to us in confession, right? Have you ever sinned so badly you think, I can't recover from this. God can't forgive me. I'm done. And you go to confession and quickly God says, you're forgiven. Your sins are like 
you know, drops in his ocean of mercy. And so because I got my identity from my mission as a baseball player, I thought I was a horrible person that day. And my dad's trying to get me to switch that paradigm. Fast forward to my senior year, things got better fortunately. And ironically, my senior year, so Pete got drafted, our third baseman got drafted as a junior. I was the starting third baseman the whole season. In the regional tournament to get to the College World Series, uh, I got into the proverbial zone, which means as an athlete, everything slowed down and went perfectly. So the first game of the tournament, we played the University of Illinois, my home state, and I went four for five and we won the game. The next day we played Brigham Young and I went two for three and we won the game. The next day we were playing Florida State and they were ranked first or second in the nation. And I was five for five, the first five times up to bat, came up in the ninth inning, we're down eight to seven, bases loaded. I worked the count to three and one. And Coach Polk would always give us this sign, he'd just make a circle, like it's gotta be one pitch, one spot. And I'm thinking, you know, take a, take a pitch, if he walks me, the game's tied, right? And then I stepped out of the box and you have, you have this internal conversation as a, as a hitter and I said, what are you thinking? You know, you're on fire, if he throws a strike, swing. So he throws this probably 93 mile an hour fastball right down the middle. I swung and it was one of those that I, I didn't even feel it off the bat, it was so perfect. And it was, as soon as I hit it, I knew that it was gone. Most of my home runs went right over the fence, but this one was far over the fence. The place went crazy. Um, grand slam, six for six, we win the game. I, my, my teammates carry me off the field. I'm named most valuable player of the tournament. And as I was driving home in Starkville, Mississippi that night, on every marquee, my name was on there, way to go Burke. And now because I get my identity from my mission, I think, wow, I'm pretty good. <laughs> a week later, we're in the College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. The zone was gone. I was one for 12 in three games. I was terrible again. And, you know, again, now my identity is I'm horrible. Because we get our identity from our mission, it's going to be a wild roller coaster, right? But if we find our identity as beloved sons of God... That identity never changes. No matter if you change jobs, no matter if you retire, God is always calling you from your baptism, his beloved child. And I want you, how many of you know the date of your baptism? We got some here. We all celebrate our birthdays, right? I want you to find out as homework, find out the date of your baptism and celebrate that day just like you do your birthday. Because that's the day your life changed dramatically when God claimed you as his son and that identity will never leave you unto eternity. During the College World Series, the Major League Draft was happening and one by one, eight of my teammates got a call and my phone was silent. And I thought, what do I have to do to get drafted? You know, we talked to some scouts and they said, I was a good student and they said, we didn't know you wanted to play professional baseball. Like, why didn't you ask, right? So I came home to Joliet feeling sorry for myself, thinking it's over. And a couple weeks later, the phone rings and it's the Chicago White Sox. They said, we're going to have a, a, a tryout in South Bend, Indiana tonight. And we've had some injuries at the middle infield position and we're looking for one guy. So I took off for South Bend. There were about four of us there. I had a great night. The next day they signed me to a contract and I was on a flight to Utica, New York to begin my professional baseball career. Now, if you follow baseball, the White Sox wear black and white. 
I, say, I still get to wear uh, black and white, but my uniform changed a little bit. So I had a pretty good season. Uh, at the end of the season, they said, Burke, you do everything well. So they, they rank baseball players in five categories, uh, hitting for average, hitting for power, running, throwing, and fielding. I did everything well, but they said they were looking for greatness in at least one of those categories. And they said, we're not going to re-sign you. So I went to spring training the next year as a free agent, tried out for a few teams, didn't get a contract, and I finally had to face the fact that my dream was over. And I was devastated because I still found my identity from my mission. And I thought, what am I going to do with my life? And so fortunately, my parents had always told me, have a backup plan. <laughs> they said, even if you make it to the big leagues, your career is going to be short. And so I studied math in college. And um, somebody told me about this career called actuarial science. It was advertised as high pay, low stress. That's a dream job, right? Do we have any actuaries here? There's usually one in a crowd like this. I don't see any. So is there one? Oh, I, did, I can't. See. Oh, there it is there. So there's two of us now. So I became an actuary for Kemper Insurance in Long Grove, Illinois, as advertised, high pay, low stress. But I was used to being out on a baseball field, and now I'm sitting behind a computer eight hours a day, and I was bored to tears. About 10 months into the job, I had this conversation with my parents. I said, if this is what the next 40 years of my life are going to be like, I don't want it. And my dad, being very practical, he said, Burke, if you're going to get married and raise a family like your brothers, this is great money. You're crazy to give this up. My mother, on the other hand, was less practical. She said, Burke, you're going to work the rest of your life. Do something you enjoy. So I listened to my mother. <laughs> I quit my job, didn't have a backup plan yet, but I knew I was not called to be an actuary. And so about that time, one of my college counselors called and he said, Burke, do you know you can make a career in the management side of sports? And I said, tell me more. He said, Ohio University in Athens has the best sports, administ sports administration program in the country. And uh, he said, I encourage you to, uh, to apply. And it was like the last week of applications. I applied, got in. One-year master's program, it included, ironically, an internship with the White Sox in Sarasota. And from there, I got a job with the King County Cougars. And I got a King County Cougars, uh, he, he said he worked there, uh, he and his dad. So this is in Geneva, Illinois. Uh, at the time, they were a Florida Marlins affiliate. And my dream now is I'm going to become general manager of the Cubs or White Sox before Theo Epstein, right? And just like a player, you have to work your way up the ladder. And so many people want to work in sports. It's a tough field to get in. It's much, uh, you know, it's who you know. And so I, I started out as the ticket manager, um, you know, sweeping peanuts and everything after the game. I'm, I'm being the, the mascot sometimes. Absolutely loved it. 12-hour days, but I was around baseball and people, two things that I love. And so four years into the job, uh, I had a job offer from the Florida Marlins in their front office in Miami. Uh, one of my college roommates had become a Major League Baseball agent, and he was looking for a numbers guy to help him in that, in that field. And I was dating somebody very seriously named Stephanie, and I thought, she's the one I'm going to marry. Well, Stephanie and I, you know, you always hear that the couple that prays together stays together, right? So Stephanie invited me to go to Eucharistic Adoration. Now, I had been Catholic about eight years at this time, 
You know, going to Mass every Sunday, but never heard of Eucharistic adoration, ironically. And I said, what is that? So she said, we're going to spend an hour of quiet prayer in front of Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament. Now, honestly, at that time in my life, it sounded kind of boring, but I thought, I want to be with Stephanie, so let's go. So we went that first Tuesday night, hour of adoration. I didn't know how to pray, so I just brought a book, a spiritual book to read. And as we left, she said, wasn't that great? Let's, let's do it again. I'm like, okay. So every Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, we were in adoration together, and she taught me how to pray. She said, why don't you put the book down and just speak to God and then listen at the level of the heart. And I tell her now, I said, that was your fatal flaw. <laughs> so about three months into Eucharistic adoration, I started to hear a voice. Not an audible voice, but I heard a voice in my heart say, I want you to be a priest. And I said, that's crazy. <laughs> I want to marry Stephanie, have a large family, become general manager of the Cubs, and live happily ever after, right? Have you ever done that? Laid out your plans for God and then say, God, bless my plans. And that's okay. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. But what's the ultimate prayer? Thy will be done. You know, Mary, let it be done to me according to your word. And so I started to pray that. And the more I prayed it, thy will be done, I felt this strong urging to be a priest. And so I finally had to talk with Stephanie. And my, my parents always taught me, do not live life with regrets. And I thought, if I never check this out, I'll always wonder what if. And so I had this talk with Stephanie, and I said, Steph, I, th I think God may be calling me to be a priest. And she said, very fa faithful Catholic woman, she said, if that's your call from God, your vocation, you have to follow it. She said, I can't compete with God. So that night, we broke up, and I started making preparations to apply for the seminary. And I was on this new path, and, and I felt guilty because, you know, Stephanie was devastated, and I was on this new path. So I started in Mundelein Seminary outside of Chicago in 1997, and almost immediately as I walked through the doors, I felt this overwhelming peace. You know, if you want to know where the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, you look for the fruits of the Holy Spirit, peace, joy, love. And I thought, this is probably what God has called me to do. And so... Three months into seminary, I get a call from one of my best friends, Matt, who's a pilot for American Airlines. And he said, Burke, are you happy? I said, Matt, I've never been happier in my life. He said, good, because I was wondering if I could start dating Stephanie. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> so, and he didn't have to call me, you know? So I said, Matt, you have my blessing. So Matt and Stephanie started dating. You can imagine what happened. Four years later, they got married. It was a second wedding that I celebrated as a priest. I baptized their three girls. We remain great friends to this day. And I learned a lesson from that experience that we find joy in life, not by doing what we want to do, but by following the will of God, even when he leads you to places that you never thought possible. But going back into that first year of seminary, I also received the worst phone call in my life. My dad called me and he said, Burke, I need you to come home right away. Your mother's been diagnosed with lung cancer. And so, and it's bad. So I dropped everything at the seminary, came home, and I was taking mom to chemotherapy and doctor's appointments so my dad could keep working. And we were getting good news from the doctors. So it was May 15th, I got the call. 
July 7th of that same year, 1998, uh, mom and dad and I were watching the Major League Baseball All-Star Game on television. And during the game, my mother began to cough and quickly we realized this was not good because she began coughing up blood. My dad ran to call 911 and I jumped up to help my mom and the last thing she said to me was, I can't breathe. And she collapsed in my arms and died. I tried to do CPR, but I, I knew there was so much blood, it was horrible. When the paramedics finally arrived, I took a step back and as my mother was coming face to face with God, I looked out the picture window and I saw her car in the driveway and I saw her purse on the kitchen counter. And I thought at this time, God's not asking her, what kind of car did you drive or how much money did you make? But Patrick Madrid often says, you know, when we die, there's an exit interview. And I, th I think that exit interview is going to be pretty simple. Did you believe in me? And what did you do with your life? How much did you love? Because when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. I can summarize the commandments with love. And my mother is the one who taught me how to love. John 15, 13 says, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. And actually, brothers, that's how we find meaning in life. We were created to give our lives away. The enemy wants to make us believe that this life is about us and we live, when we live selfishly, you know, it all falls apart around us. But as we lay down our lives for others, as we pour out our love for others, that's when we find out who we are. And so I was ordained a priest. Well, I should say this. After my mom died, you know, I was one year in the seminary. I, I went, to, went through a crisis of faith. I was mad at God. I said, God, I'm giving you my life as a priest, and now you take the most important person in my life. And, you know, I struggled. I almost threw in the towel on the whole thing. And a couple months after my mom died, you know, so as being the youngest of three boys, my mother and I were very close, very, you know, we thought alike. She appears to me in a dream. In this dream, she was about 25 years old, and she was rocking a baby. Now, I have actually three brothers. The second brother died at birth. And I believe she was rocking my brother that I had never met. And she looked at me in this dream with this beautiful joy on her face. And she said, Burke, heaven is real. Jesus is real. And don't stop what you're doing, meaning the priesthood. I learned at my mother's wake that she had told people years before, even when I was playing college baseball, she wouldn't be surprised that if I became a priest. Long before I ever thought of it. And so that day when I had the dream, I never looked back and I still am not. And I, I believe that God has called me from being a, a Protestant baseball player to a Catholic priest is to help Catholics realize the gift that you have in the church, the gift that you have in the sacraments, especially in the Eucharist. You know, there's no more important lesson. You know, you know who cares who wins the World Series or the Super Bowl? I mean, we care, but in the big picture... What does it really mean? What really matters is having a relationship with Christ. What really matters is preparing ourselves for all eternity. Because relatively speaking, this life is really short compared to eternity. So I was ordained a priest in 2002 in the Diocese of Joliet, Illinois. I served as a parochial vicar for four years, vocation director for 12, director of evangelization for four 
and uh, just recently became pastor of St. Isaac Jogues Church in Hinsdale, Illinois. I absolutely love being a pastor. But in 2013, I got a, an interesting call from the Catholic Athletes for Christ. They said, Father Burke, we hear that you played baseball. We're looking for a chaplain for the Chicago Cubs. And so I said, I'm in. <laughs> and so what does a chaplain do for the Chicago Cubs? Basically, I go down on Sunday mornings when they're home. It's about twice a month. I celebrate Mass right in the stadium. The backdrop for Mass is Wrigley Field, which is pretty incredible. You might have a $20 million ball player at Mass sitting next to somebody who sells popcorn at the game. And in God's eyes, is there any difference? He doesn't care how much money we make. He doesn't care about our job titles. You know, those details are important to God. But ultimately speaking, you know, we're all the same. We're all his beloved children. And so 2016, of course, was a, a pretty good year for Chicago. And Joe Madden now had become the manager for the Cubs. And Joe Madden had gone through Catholic schools all the way through his life. And he said, Father Burke, Catholic priests changed my life. And so you have permission from me to go anywhere you want. The only place you can't be, according to Major League Baseball rules, is in the dugout during the game. He said, in fact, do you want to practice with the team tomorrow? <laughs> I said, are you serious? So the next morning, you know, I'm, I'm like a little kid. I've got, got the full Cubs uniform on. I'd become friends with Miguel Montero. And Joe said, just follow Miguel. So this is down in spring training. And so I'm playing catch with Miguel and just pinching myself of what I'm experiencing. And then batting practice starts. And so we go to the, there's like five different fields. I went with Miguel and it was the whole starting lineup and me. So it's Bryant and Rizzo and Russell and all those guys. And they're looking, they're trying to figure out who I am because they'd never seen me <laughs> in a baseball uniform. They always see me as a priest. And so I'm in the outfield shagging balls during the game. And uh, I'm talking with Kyle Hendricks, one of the pitchers. And as we're talking, tears start to roll down my face. And my first thought was, there's no crying in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm trying to figure out, why am I crying? And I went back to that seven-year-old boy who said, I'm going to be on that field one day. And it was like God was saying, this was your dream to be a Major League Baseball player. But now you're living my dream as a priest. And you get to do it in the Major Leagues. And my experience of God is we cannot outdo God in generosity. You know, everything that we have that is good is a gift from God. And when we offer it back to God, he takes it, blesses it, multiplies it, purifies it, and gives it back to us in ways that we never thought possible. It's the same thing that happens at every Mass, right? We bring forward water, wine, and bread, gifts that God has given us, through the hands of the priest, the consecrated hands of the priest, God takes it, consecrates it, changes it into his own body and blood, and then he gives it back to us in Holy Communion. Man, I want to encourage you and challenge you to be generous with the gifts that God has given you. These gifts are not meant for you alone. They're meant for the greater good of society. And the more each one of us becomes holy, the more each one of us seeks union with God, the more we can start to transform this world. My spiritual director is a priest in, in Italy. He's an Irish Dominican, Father Paul Murray, and he travels the world. And we do spiritual direction via Zoom. And he said to me one day, he said, 
Do you know where the hope of the Catholic Church lies today? And my father, I don't. And he said, it's in the United States. Which surprised me, right? We, we watch the news and we think everything's going wrong in this country. I said, tell me more. He said, I travel the world and the Catholics that I find that are holy, that are in it, so to speak, in the United States, they're all in. And I would imagine there's a bunch of you here that are all in. And he said, Catholics are so innovative that you watch what comes out of the United States. It'll transform the Catholic Church in the world. And what we're experiencing right here is a piece of that hope that 2,400 guys are coming together. You could be doing a lot of other things on a Saturday morning, but you've chosen to come here to grow in holiness. You've chosen to come here to grow closer to Jesus Christ. You've come here to grow closer to your brothers in Christ. And so I'm going to offer three challenges today. I'm known, oh, before I do that, people ask me, did you get a ring? So the, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> so they divided paid employees versus volunteers. I'm a volunteer. So at the time, my seminarians pitched in and bought me this knockoff ring. <laughs> but it gives me a great opportunity to speak about you know, I, I have rings from college that are sitting in a drawer somewhere collecting dust, right? And if I got a ring from the Cubs, it would be fun, but ultimately it would end up in the drawer. I'm not going to celebrate mass with a big rock on my finger, you know? But what I want is available to all of us. It's called the crown of eternal glory. Nobody can take it away from you. It never collects dust, and it's for eternity. That's why we're here, brothers. And so my challenge, three challenges in my parish, we're doing what we're calling a 40-day challenge. Now, I know we're 11 days into Lent, but you can start today. I've challenged them. We have a beautiful adoration chapel at our church. I've challenged them to make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament Chapel once a day for 40 days. Even if it's for two minutes, it will change your life. And it, is, it just warms my heart to see every time I go into the adoration chapel, there's usually one person, you know, every hour. There's 9, 15, there's 20 people in there in the Adoration Chapel. I can't wait to see how God transforms them individually, but also our parish through that challenge. And my, my parish is a high-achieving parish. And so I found out when you challenge high achievers, you know, just like I love playing for coaches that raise the bar because I couldn't wait to try to reach their goal. The second thing is daily mass. When I went on a Curcio weekend in 1993, we were challenged to go to daily mass. I'd never done that before, maybe occasionally. So I was 26 years old. The Monday after the Curcio, I started to go to daily mass. Transformative. A week into it, this lady pulled me aside and she said, Burke, be careful. I said, what do you mean, be careful? She said, that's how my son started. I said, what do you mean? She said, my son's a priest. <laughs> Now, I don't want to scare you thinking, gosh, if I go to adoration and mass, I'm going to become a priest. Maybe some of you will. But every single one of us, if you combine Eucharistic adoration and daily mass, the Lord will transform your hearts in ways that you never imagined. And he will do great things with you as he promised through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing is 
Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. In the scriptures, you know, Paul has Barnabas as a good friend, and then Timothy is somebody that he's mentoring. Paul is somebody that is the mentor. Every single one of us men needs somebody that is at least one step ahead of us in the spiritual life to walk this journey with us to help us take one step closer to Christ. We all need a Barnabas, a good friend who's on equal level with us that we can go arm in arm in with this in this journey. And then finally, we all need a Timothy, somebody that we can take by the hands and we can mentor one step at a time to help them grow. This combination of having a mentor, a brother, and somebody that we're mentoring is powerful in the spiritual life. I have a, a book that just came out in August called uh, A Grand Slam for God. You can probably tell why the title is such from Word on Fire, uh, Bishop Barron. And so I'll be selling books. I'll be happy to talk to anybody afterward. I also do a daily YouTube video on the daily scripture readings. If you just go to YouTube and search for my name, you can subscribe and, and get those every day. And I have a written blog where you, if you'd rather read rather than watch, I have a written blog in English and Spanish on the daily scriptures. And so guys, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been a, a great blessing to be here with you. And uh, let us all grow in holiness and become the saints that God has called us to be. God bless you.